Hello, I'm Letitia, founder of personal coaching company Looper, and this is the New Leaf podcast. New Leaf explores the practical, emotional, and sometimes messy side of getting back to work after having had a baby, but with a particular focus on pre and post baby identity. In each episode, I interview incredible ladies and sometimes the odd bloke to find out quite how they manage their returns together with their challenges and vulnerabilities. In the age where the pressure for female perfection and having it all has never been higher, welcome to New Leaf. Follow the podcast on Instagram at, at newleafpodcast to find out more and follow me at loopergrowth to find out about my prenatal and postnatal mama coaching program. So on this episode, I speak to the wonderfully dry and witty Rachel Waters, an old colleague of mine from my management consulting days at EY or Ernst & Young, which we refer to frequently, a demanding client-facing job, which back in my corporate life required a lot of travel and very long hours. Just FYI, I did wonder whether to include or leave out the name of the company, as I felt like we were maybe being a little too honest about our experiences. But actually, in the end, I thought that it was a while ago now, four years for me since I left, and that also I've always said that I would be honest and unfiltered and speak to you guys on this podcast as I would a friend. So yes, we are a bit candid, but hey-ho, I sort of don't care anymore. Rachel and I covered a swathe of topics, from the sublime to the ridiculous, and a particularly pertinent theme that stood out to me is the concept of life's plans. We can have a propensity in this modern age to wed ourselves to life's path, whatever that means, of the exams, the university or college, the job, the boyfriend or girlfriend, moving in, getting engaged, getting married, having babies, and then not sure what follows. We are mostly at that blissfully naive early adulthood point in our 20s and 30s for where many of us, life hasn't really happened yet. Big crises, big disasters, chronic illness, they're for later, aren't they? So what Rachel really shone a light on was the fickle nature of our universe and how plans are upended when life does indeed happen and the path deviates. Her journey to where she is now professionally in part stemmed from this upending of her life, where Rachel was brave enough to discuss with me getting a divorce at a young age and embarking on a move to a new city in a quest to reclaim her path and figure out where it was all going. What follows in the conversation is a fascinating foray into her experiences of life happening, from fertility challenges, to love in the modern era and online, to miscarriage, to the impact of pregnancy on our hormones and mental health, to the use of medication to rebalance oneself chemically, as well as the death of her own dad and the tragic loss of her friend's baby. Life, indeed, does happen to us all. Baby losses do happen. People close to us do die or get ill. Pandemics scupper weddings, careers and relationships, and rarely does anyone follow the predicted straight line to, well, who knows where. We are very accustomed to focusing on the forward and the future rather than where we are standing right now, the standing still. So when the universe decides to challenge us and throw everything out the window from what we had planned, it can be distressing, destroying and devastating to us. But also, 
In the destruction, we can find creation and it can be renewing, replenishing and rejuvenating. The storm has to come to an end and the sun has to come back out. What I really liked about Rachel and this episode in general is that it is like a true reflection of life in a strange sort of nutshell. There were really funny moments, us both using laughter as a bit of a mechanism to deal with the things that were dark, meaningful and difficult. And there were also moments of beauty and the ridiculous in things that are sad. And ultimately, it just felt like a very smooth conversation late at night when in reality, it was extremely early in the morning after a lot of technical difficulties, a sleepless night and an awful lot of coffee. It made me highly reflective and grateful for what I have and philosophical about our need to stay a little more present. So enjoy. And as usual, I can't wait to hear what you think. Follow me on Twitter at New Leaf Podcast to continue the conversation. So my next guest is a proud Yorkshire mum living down in London whose career has ended up going full circle. She started out on the NHS on their graduate scheme before briefly dabbling in the private sector to see if she could improve and transform much needed services in local government before returning to her true passion of healthcare at the UK's beloved NHS. She's now Director of Programme Delivery at NHS England, which, given our current crisis, I can't imagine is a particularly easy or stress-free job, and is also managing this with a three- and a four-year-old. A self-confessed oversharer and Brene Brown enthusiast, it gives me great pleasure to welcome Rachel Waters. Hello. <laughs> so we're laughing because we just I just did an entire introduction and actually wasn't recording at all so I would have had a snazzier hello as well the first time around <laughs> how are you doing I'm good I'm good I've got a cup of tea there's no one in the house it's quiet so tell me where are you in the world right now and what can you see around you um, I'm in Wanstead in East London. I say East London, we're almost Essex, which you can tell in my three-year-old's accent. And I'm in my living room because I did think about sitting in the rails of clothes to muffle the sound upstairs, but you can't have muffled sound and Wi-Fi access in our house. It's too high up. So um sat in our living room, ready to go. Amazing. Cup of tea essential, particularly if you're from Yorkshire. I just had to sneak that in there. Yeah, it is, of course, Yorkshire tea, although I have gone full decaf. Things got quite bad during COVID. <laughs> My tea and Diet Coke consumption was through the roof, so I've um, sorted myself out. (laughs) So I'll just describe how we know each other. So we worked together at Big Brand Consultancy a few years ago. So we were colleagues for about a year, but I just love Rachel. What can I say? (laughs) That's very kind. I don't think it was even that long, you know, because I was pregnant with Theo. I think it was only about six months. Six months it was? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Well, Rachel, as she says, is a self-confessed oversharer. So (laughs) one of those things where you feel like you know everything about someone's life because of Instagram, and then you realise that actually you don't at all because it's Instagram. So we we caught up and I realised that actually there was quite a lot to catch up on and that Rachel might be a really good person for this podcast. (laughs) It's it's completely out of my comfort zone. I've never done anything like this before, despite being an oversharer. So I'll probably sound awkward. You won't probably sound awkward. Not true at all. So look, tell me about your immediate family unit. So who are the small people in your life? 
So my, the small people in my life are Theo and Grace. Theo is four and Grace is three. There's actually 20 months between them. So it's not as heroic as it sounds, but I do love those few months of the year where I can sound like there's only a year between them because I feel like you get quite a lot of sympathy from people <laughs> or they think you're really impressive. Theo's just started school. So he's just gone to the to primary school around the corner and Gracie is at nursery. They're pretty different. They're either best friends or absolute enemies. They will fight till they draw blood. <laughs> Theo, he's quite sensitive. He's quite thoughtful, I suppose, not sensitive. He likes to follow the rules and Grace is just wild. And I have so little control over her. She, uh, her, she went to football on Saturday and her new coach asked her who her team was. And she said, strong girls club. <laughs> so I which sort of sums her up really oh that's so <laughs> and then my husband is Jack but often when I say Jack people think it's a a child because it's quite a popular child's name so just to be clear Jack is my husband not my child and also we've given our children extremely common names they're ubiquitous so that was a poor decision I suppose but uh we just couldn't agree on much. We kind of didn't have much choice, really. Theo was pretty much the only thing we could agree on. I wanted Henry, and Jack said we could only have it if it was pronounced Henri after Thierry. And I had to veto that. <laughs> I love that Strong Girls Club thing. I think that's amazing. I've seen that on T-shirts. Yeah, there's a brand. Um, it was like a, you know, classic Instagram mum brand called Motherhood. Motherhood? Yeah, Motherhood, but with a T-H-A in the middle and they make Strong Girls Club t-shirts and that's where it's come from and she's got cousins who are six and four and they're her Strong Girls Club and when we have our Fridays together because it's all Fridays has always been my non-working day and now obviously it's just Grace and I with no Theo because he's at school so she calls those our Strong Girls Club days. (laughs) Does Theo want to join? Um, He does get quite grumpy on a Friday morning yeah partly though I think it's just the end of the week he's settled in really well but he's exhausted they get so tired, don't they? Must be so much stimulation compared to just like being at home with mummy. Yeah, he's exhausted and starving all the time. When he gets home, he's just he could just eat through the house. So when did he officially start? Because obviously coronavirus has sort of messed everything up. We were okay, really. We did. We weren't too affected by it. He um, started on I think it was the 9th of September, and they had a week of half days, and then off they went. They seemed to have managed it quite well. But the roulette on the door, on the gate every morning when they take the children's temperatures is just phenomenally stressful because he's four and it's October. So at some point there will be a temperature and you're constantly on the edge of your seat thinking, oh God, not today, not today. And obviously, ordinarily, we just give them some cow pollen and send them off. So Yeah, and I guess you can't do that now, right? Is that what they say? No, you can't. No, no, no. I love that you work for NHS England while we're talking about this. We're actually a very compliant household, to be clear. (laughs) So tell me then, that leads me on very nicely to my next question, which is, I mean, we met when you were pregnant. So tell me about your life pre-babies, because I feel like there's a story in that. (laughs) There's probably quite a lot of stories in that, and some of them we'll just leave to the side. Um, but um, so I hadn't been down here very long when I met Jack and then we decided to have a baby so I'd been working for EY uh, in the north in Manchester came down here and I actually had always worked in health because I am a bit of a health nerd health has always been my passion the health service not my own health I should say and uh, when I was pregnant with Theo I had really terrible morning sickness and I was my client was in Brighton I was traveling a lot and those trains don't always have toilets. So I used to have to take my own vomit bag on the train. And so then I managed to find a placement with local government 
you were in NHS before I was. EY. So, so what happened there? After I finished university, I'm from York originally. And um, if you're from York, the chances are you will have worked for one of the following, Norwich Union, the railways or Roundtrees. So after university, I worked at Norwich Union for a little while while I decided what I kind of wanted to do. My family is embarrassingly involved in healthcare. Like we could probably set up our own mini health service, although I am the black sheep that isn't clinical. And I decided I went to do a grad scheme because I felt like I needed the structure because I was sort of ambling along. And all the grad schemes I looked at just really turned me off. I'm not very financy. I didn't want to do accountancy or anything. And I didn't really want to go and work for the man. So I found the NHS one and it just clicked. And as I put all my eggs in that basket and luckily it worked out. So I did the scheme in the northeast, and then I finished and uh, moved to Manchester with my then boyfriend. And I stayed for four years. Ordinarily, I'd try and be politically astute, but my rage lives off. Andrew Lansley was the health secretary at the time and the architect of the Health and Social Care Act. And it just was such an enormous setback in so many ways. And it became really hard to do the right thing and to do it efficiently. So could you just explain what the Social Care Act did? So it was a fundamental kind of overhaul of the structure of the NHS and Calspre social care didn't actually get that much of a look in really. As is a theme of, of many governments and the intent was to encourage GPs to set the direction for how they bent the money on behalf of that population. It just, it was a, it was a phenomenally expensive reorganisation and it just didn't feel like the right thing. And just on the ground, it just became really difficult to get things done. And I became completely demoralised and thought, stuff this for a game of soldiers. Oh, we'll try and make a difference from the outside. And that was your sort of foray? It was, yeah. I had um, a couple of friends from the NHS grad scheme who'd gone to EY either straight after the scheme, actually, or had made their way there just before me. So I had quite an easy in, to be honest, and uh, had a couple of conversations and landed there. How long after you joined EY did you fall pregnant with Theo? Lots of things happened in my real life, not my work life. And I actually got divorced in 2014. And then I moved to London. I just needed a complete change. I've never really scratched my London itch and it felt like an opportunity to reset on every level. So I came down to London and all my university friends live in South London generally or West London and they're all kind of definitely not getting divorced at 33 and had all started families, etc. And I felt so removed from that that I sort of cut myself off slightly and kind of just set up a new life really in East London. My, my best friend Alison was down the road, which helped. But I hadn't really expected to meet someone like Jack as soon as I did, but I met Jack in the October and it just just escalated quickly. By the December, he'd pretty much moved in and we decided we'd have a baby. And then I got pregnant in the March the following year. So it was all pretty quick. Oh, my life. I know. And we met on Tinder to my eternal, <laughs> to my eternal shame slash entertainment. So there you go. A love story for the modern time. That's hilarious, but also kind of amazing because, I mean, that's what, six years ago and here you are. Yeah, it's six years ago next week, actually. When we were first working together, I remember you being sort of almost like a bit incredulous at your current situation. (laughs) It was just unexpected. I think I had sort of made my peace with the fact that 
you know, I was starting again. It would probably take a long time. I wasn't even sure what I wanted at that point before I met Jack. And I, life had been pretty messy and quite hard. It had been a really tough 18 months or so. And I suppose I sometimes am a bit incredulous if I stop and think about the change in my life in the last seven years, because so much has happened. But it's right. It all feels right. It all sort of just serendipitously fell into place. And I feel really fortunate for that. Not in a smug way, but I just, you know, there are a lot of shit things in the world. And I think we got pretty lucky. It just must have been so weird to be going through something as mega as a divorce and then less than two years later be having a baby with someone else. Like if you could say to yourself, by the way, this is what's going to happen. You'd just be like, no. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was it was a messy situation. One best discussed over wine, probably. But it does slightly blow my mind when I stop and look at those few years, actually. But. <laughs> but it got you to where you are with your two beautiful babies. It did. And and I do, I've never really had a plan as an adult. I certainly haven't really had a professional plan other than I quite fancy doing this. Maybe I'd like to do this at some stage. I guess when I was growing up, like lots of people who are in a fairly cliched middle class family, like the path was sort of set, you know, you're 16, you do your GCSEs, you're 17 and you learn to drive and then you do your A-levels and you go to university and get a job and you move in, you get married. Actually, no one in our family does the moving in, get married, babies thing in the right order. But um, (laughs) so when Adam and I split up, it was the first time in my life and I didn't really have a plan. So for it all to have kind of shaken down and landed like this does blow my mind. And I think professionally one of the reasons we were able to move quite quickly I guess Jack and I is that I had a pretty stable job and and so did Jack and so we could naively we thought we'd just crack on. (laughs) It's really interesting what you say about this having a plan thing and I think particularly in my other professional life of coaching it's amazing how many people get to late 20s early 30s and then think oh the plan sort of run out and now what and it can be quite a sort of weird time that does make people break up or switch jobs or have a crisis I mean it was that was I suppose part of what happened with Adam and I is that my plan our plan didn't quite work out in that we we really struggled to have children so we tried for three years and I think that I mean there's a lot there's a lot to the story but it was the catalyst for me to realize that actually a lot of other things weren't right that was, I suppose, my first experience of the plan, either running out or just like my path going completely <laughs> at a total tangent to the plan. I need a plan. I'd like to know what's what. And I, it really threw me. But we, we got lucky. That must have been a huge shock for you, given that you had thought that maybe that wasn't on the cards for you. I just hadn't expected it to happen because you don't expect to meet someone and then six months later get pregnant by choice. And actually, when I when I told people at work, quite a lot of people at EY were like, was it planned? Was it an accident? <laughs> a, phenomenally rude. But B, yes, it was. Thanks very much. So it's, yeah, it was a surprise. I just had completely resigned myself to the fact that I was going to go on a load of terrible Tinder dates and be miserable for a while. And then eventually down the road, something would work out, but it'd probably be too late and I'd be in, yeah, but the universe had a different plan. I just I love seeing the plans that the universe has. I think it's always very pleasantly surprising and sort oh, of strange. It's way. an ask, but I, I, usually <laughs> something comes good. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Taking us back then to a second for us both being at EY, yeah. you being pregnant, 
We were both working at a council who probably shouldn't be named. And what was on your mind in terms of how maternity leave was going to work? Obviously, we all have to go through that whole maternity leave battle once. But what was going through your head about how you were going to go off, when you were going to come back, etc.? Um, I think I was fairly relaxed about maternity leave and things like that, but I really struggled with pregnancy. So we got pregnant really easily and everything was fine. I wasn't particularly sick with Theo. I felt horrendous, but I was only sick kind of, you know, is this an appropriate conversation to talk about vomit? Sorry, I don't know. Maybe oh, of course it is. it is. So I felt awful with him for about 16 weeks, but I wasn't horrendously unwell, unlike with Grace where I would puke every morning, but then that was it. I felt fine for the rest of the day. But like clockwork every day, boom, done, on we go. So I've got pretty lucky, I guess, in that respect, but mentally I just found it incredibly hard. God, I don't know how pregnant I was. It was probably late summer or summerish, and I just my mental health really nosedived and there will be a theme to this conversation, but I think I'm fairly finely balanced chemically as an individual and pregnancy has no regard for your hormonal balance, nor does the early stages of motherhood actually. And I just, I found it really hard. I was so grateful to to be pregnant and I was so happy and actually, we were particularly happy because we we're in the throes of that naive new stage relationship type <laughs> bubble. But I was miserable. I just wept a lot. So I was just, I guess, I wasn't particularly worried about the mechanics of maternity leave and how it would work out logistically with work, etc. Or financially or any of that. I just was really worried that I was going to have postnatal depression because I was so miserable being pregnant. And in fact, I didn't at all. I absolutely loved my maternity leave and sort of, I don't want to say I sailed through it, which I was about to, which is entirely misleading because I don't think anyone does. But I loved my first maternity leave. It was it was an absolute joy. And I got really lucky that I made some great mum friends and Jack is generally always amazing anyway. So that worked out. But pregnancy was tough for me and I always felt quite guilty about that. Why did you feel guilty? Because, probably partly because of, the experiences we'd had with struggling to conceive previously, Adam and I, I guess I just felt ungrateful for not relishing these beautiful nine months of growing a human when I was so lucky to be doing that. But you know what, growing a human's really hard. (laughs) It's really hard. Apart from all the hormonal stuff, no one talks to you about the horrible side effects physically, which we will not get into on a public podcast. But my God, it's just really tough. And I, I moaned a lot. Bless Jack. A lot. I would get when I'm pregnant, I get really bad restless legs. Really bad. So I would <laughs> such a dick. I'd wake him up and be like, You've got to rub my legs. They're really sore. I can't sleep. I'd be like flailing all over the bed in protest. A bit like a toddler actually. And bless Jack for dutifully kind of semi waking up and rubbing my legs for me so that I could try and get some sleep. I was a rotter. I was a real dick. To be fair, if you're growing his child, I feel like, you know, the odd wake up overnight when you just have chronic insomnia anyway throughout yeah. pregnancy, or at least I did. I did Terrible. too. Yeah. Chronic insom- insomnia um, plus social media is like the worst combination as well. But I think he might suggest it wasn't the odd wake up, but that I really shared my physical ailments with him. You're just being egalitarian, Rachel. I think so, fine. yeah. I'm a sharer. <laughs> Okay, so pregnancy came to an end, obviously, with the birth. How was how was your birth? Long, very long. I went into labour at 6am, give or take, on New Year's Day. Um, and 
I had Theo at four o'clock in the afternoon on the 3rd of January, which was my mum's birthday. And she's still very grateful that I had him on her birthday. And I think she somehow thinks that I did that on purpose. And I assure you, I would have got that kid out much sooner had I been able to. We lived in Hackney at the time. And I don't understand the inequity of this because not everywhere does it, but Hackney screens pregnant women for group B strep, group strep B, which way around it is, um, which I think is phenomenally important because a lot of places don't do it. And I have a number of friends whose children have been extremely ill as a result of contracting that during birth. So I always knew that as soon as my waters broke, I was going to have to go in to have IV antibiotics. (laughs) I remember ringing them and saying, yeah, I'm in labor. I'm definitely in labor because my contractions were quite short, but very close together or from the beginning, basically. And they were like, have your, have your waters broken? I said, I, I don't know. She was like, I think you'd know. And I was like, well, I don't know. I've been in the bath a lot. Maybe they've broken in the bath. Anyway, obviously they hadn't. And then when they did, it was this ridiculous, cinematic, quite comedic moment with gushing. So we went in then, which I think was maybe the second. I sort of lost track, really. And I was generally ungainly and inelegant and demanded an epidural. Um, during which Jack was told by my wonderfully terrifying Ghanaian midwife to go and sit in the corner and face the wall because he looked like a fainter. Um, (laughs) And indeed, he probably would have been. And then eventually I had a section. He just wasn't, I wasn't dilating and he wasn't coming out. He was pretty chill. So um, I had a section which was an emergency section, but very relaxed and a great experience, actually. I shout out to the Homerton who were previously rated inadequate for their maternity services, but I had a great experience. So yeah. Did Jack ever resume his partaking or he did. how long did he have to face the oh, just, for? just for the duration of the uh, epidural administration. So so long as uh, he wasn't watching a giant needle get stuck in my back, he was fine. So you had maternity leave. It sounds like it was wonderful. It's amazing that that mental health fear that you had didn't come to fruition. So how long did you take off in the end? I took just shy of a year off. How was that going back? Well, (laughs) it wasn't ideal. So I, we knew that we wanted to have two close together and I went back. I don't know how to phrase it. I was going to say I went back pregnant, semi-pregnant. The day I went back, I was having a miscarriage and it was, Mm. I went back to a, I didn't actually go back full time at that point. I went back for a health team away day. So it was a bit weird. I was at this event. Um, quite excited to see everyone quite excited to be going back still trying to kid myself that because I'd had bleeds early on with Theo and actually I did with Grace as well so I was still trying to kind of kid myself that I wasn't having a miscarriage I was just spotting it was just weird it was a bit surreal it was quite an emotional time so when I went back properly I was in the midst of that kind of a you know the malaise after all I don't I don't want to oversell it because it wasn't a deeply traumatic event and I know that sounds really callous but it was it was very sad but I felt grateful for Theo and I just had this feeling in my gut that it would work out and quite a lot of shitty things have happened to my friends in pregnancy or their children after birth and I just had this feeling that it was just what was physiologically necessary it was okay I just I think I went into it pretty naively, to be honest. I just didn't think that the balance would be as hard to get as the balance is to get. Going back to that away day, so you were literally there. What on earth did you do? Did you go home or no? No, I couldn't do anything really, could I? Like if I I, if I'd gone home, I sort of thought, well, I'll just be sat there. 
I went home that night. I went to EPAU the next day and they confirmed it to early pregnancy assessment unit. And, and, and that, that kind of was that. I know it sounds really, feel like I'm possibly being too unemotional about it, but I, I did have this really strong feeling that it in, not at that time, it was awful at the time, but I had this, just this sense that it was what was supposed to have happened for whatever reason, physiologically, that pregnancy wasn't viable. And so my body figured it out. Yeah. I mean, there's no, there's no right way, is there? I mean, that's, that's the point. There's no right way. Obviously, it was, God, I sound like a real cow. It wasn't without sadness. It was, it was very sad. And that Christmas was really sad. Like my birthday is just before Christmas. And I remember going to an Advent service in York Minster with my mum and dad and just weeping uncontrollably throughout it. And my dad was like, what is wrong with her? And my mum obviously knew what was wrong with me. But, um, and my dad had known about it. He just didn't put two and two together. Um, <laughs> dads. Um, and uh, so it wasn't without its sadness. I just, I had this sort of quiet faith that everything was as it was supposed to be. Mm. Um, and on that actual day, I had my, one of my best friends, Lauren, um, was around and just, you know, generally doing her usual job of keeping me upright and <laughs> saying all the right things and generally being my best cheerleader. So. I mean, girlfriends in times like that are pretty pretty essential um, absolutely so how long after that experience did you get pregnant again next cycle so pretty much straight away oh wow um, okay. and we found out on Theo's first birthday um so we'd had a house full the house full seems like such a weird concept at the moment but we'd had a house full of grandparents everyone went home I was like do you know what? I really think I am so I went to do a little test and then Theo's birthday was completely overshadowed, poor kid, by this news. And it's never been the same for him since. Um, Don't worry, he, he won't remember it anyway. It's fine. <laughs> you said that just getting that balance right of being a mom and coming back to work. And then also so soon after coming back, finding out that you were pregnant again. How, what was going on at that time? Yeah, it was quite a lot, as is always the way for us. There was quite a lot going on at that point. I think we were moving house as well. so. I think when you go back to work or when certainly when I went back to work I probably just didn't understand how hard the struggle is and it was the first time in my life I guess where I'd felt pulled in so many different directions by so many different obligations to Theo to Jack to work to myself and I think it's probably not unreasonable to suggest that I think a lot of women put themselves at the bottom of the list and I was reflecting on this before we spoke and I think actually as well when you go back to work for us there was a shift for Jack as well because before that point I'd been on mat leave so I'd he was always incredibly good at getting back for bedtime and stuff you know not every night we tend to do two on two off each but when I'd gone back to work there wasn't anyone there to pick up all the slack so I think there was a shift for him as well and also for me that shift in it's not just balancing pick up and drop off and client expectations etc there's the mental load thing I, I'm a total bloody bore about the mental load but god it's huge and I was knackered because I was growing a human and we were about to move house and just to translate the mental load thing because I know that a few people who listen to this don't have children yeah it's this concept that is very true or at least I'm yet to see it be disproved that mums even when you go back to work there's this sort of list in your head 
that never really goes away. So it's Absolutely. things like, oh, it's swimming on Friday. I need to make sure that his suit or whatever is washed by that particular time. It's all the logistical planning of yeah. childcare remains in the mum's head because it's almost habitual because you get so used to it when you're on maternity leave. And I don't know if you found this, Rachel, but you have to have a rebalance when you go back to work because I found myself not realizing while I was getting quite stressed. And it's like, well, because we haven't rebalanced out the mental load again, yeah, like I'm still doing it all. And yeah. And I, I mean, we have always been really equal and continue to be. And I'm really lucky in that respect. I don't think I ever gave him a chance to carry a lot of that mental load. He could absolutely do it if required, but I'm anal and uptight and a bit of a control freak and actually as you say you're so conditioned to do it that it's kind of you know easier to just crack on and do it yourself but we we joke about it and call it we say I'm the c-suite like I'm the family chief exec but I'm probably all the other like comms as well the only thing Jack probably is is he's probably the finance director um <laughs> but otherwise I'm you know I'm HR I'm comms I'm all of it I'm like you know engagement it's it's a whole shebang and that's quite a, a tough transition I think yeah, it is a tough transition. And um, I was reading somewhere that when you're a mum, it's not just being a mum, you're also your child's nutritionist, your child's educator, your yeah. child's, exactly as you say, your logistics manager, the communications manager, if you're communicating with nursery, it's still mostly the woman that's taking that stuff on, even when people go back full time, which is interesting, or at least it starts out that way. And then people need to have a chat generally seems to be the trend we I've had a, a humdinger of a row I don't know when it was actually but about snacks about <laughs> leaving the house and it always having to be me that thought about the snack bag and the drink and since then Jack's snack game is oh man it's good he's really good he always like he doesn't, I'm a bit shit. I'll just like sling a bag of pom bears and a fruit yo-yo in there because my standards over the years have just plummeted um, to be barely existent. Whereas Jack will chop up a load of fresh veg for crudités and take little Tupperware boxes out. And he is probably a lot of things that I have stewed about in the past. Whereas if I just said, this is bollocks, you need to help me out. He would have quite happily got on and done them, but I don't, I don't always give him the chance. Yeah, and actually, you're not you're not the first guest to have said that, which is that there's also an element of just holding on to that control and expecting people to be mind readers, which they're not. Absolutely, and it does become part of what you do. And it's for me, there's always a comfort in routine and knowing that I'm doing something well. I used to struggle walking around when I first went back. This is a bit ridiculous, but I used to kind of feel a bit lost without having something to push. Just feeling like I'd lost a big chunk of my identity because I wasn't just a random person in a dress. I can't wear suits, I'm too short. But like I was a mother and I was at work and I felt like this is half my job. I have another one. And I've spent the last 12 months doing that only and I just couldn't mash the two identities together. And because obviously I'm a talker, <laughs> go figure, I just probably spent too much time talking about my kids to people who didn't really give a shit. Because why would you? And that's funny as well, because then you feel like you're falling into the stereotypical oh, category. 100%. And yeah, as you said, consulting isn't exactly the most, or at least it wasn't when I left. It's not the most female-centric workplace, I think. Well done. Well, well put. <laughs> I also used it. to, um, 
<laughs> I know other people do this, but I used to like have to fight the urge to wave at the driver at the tube stop because, um, well, because I'd always been getting the tube with Theo and then, and if we were getting the tube together, we'd always wave to the driver and the Victoria line drivers are very good at waving and they often toot. So I'd be like waiting for the tube in the morning to go to work and I'd sort of just instinctively almost wave to the driver. Um, <laughs> And also the rocking. I don't know if you had that when you go back to oh, work. Yeah. And you're used to sort of swaying with a child. So you still stand near a printer or something just swaying. The, the mummy sway. The mummy sway. The other thing is if the if your child's been going through a particular bad time, I get crying like in my head. You know, like oh, how you have like a nursery rhyme or something in your head. I get crying in my head where I can just hear it. That's awful. That's I know. Some sort of torture <laughs> idea. I know. Going back to the wonderful world of consulting, I'm, we're yeah. really selling it, by the way. I know. Um, there are lots of good things about it. And I worked with lots of very impressive people and people with whom I'm still in touch. But I think we're about to get to the bit where you asked me why I left and why it wasn't for me. Well, actually, I was going to get to the bit, the lead up to that, which is, do you feel like there were sort of some prevalent assumptions in consulting about what people did and didn't do post babies in that industry? Yeah, probably. I, I think. I'd been quite lucky and had a lot of London engagements, so I hadn't had to travel for a while. But there is a lot of travel in health, and ultimately, it's a profit-making business. It's a partnership. There are targets to hit, etc. And you go where the market needs you to go. So I was really concerned that I was going to have to travel at some point, and that was always in the back of my mind. I couldn't ever really settle to it. And actually, that's one of the reasons why I'd done some local government work when I was pregnant with Theo, because it meant I had in theory, both local government and health options open to me within London. I didn't have any really great role models in EY who I could look to and say, I see you doing what you're doing whilst maintaining your family with very little help. Because although we've got Jack's parents nearby who are incredible, and I'm very lucky, I've always been able to have an afternoon off or whatever when I need it and the odd overnight sleepover. We don't have a lot of family support near us. So it's just us and nursery and friends, etc. There are either people who had, you know, absolutely full-time plus, plus, plus care from their parents or from, you know, from the kids' grandparents, or they had nannies, etc. The role models I did have that were warm individuals, warm women who I felt were similar to me, their kids were grown up and they'd either done it later in life or something like that. So I, I felt slightly concerned, I suppose, about what the future would look like for me if I were to stay there. And at that time it was still quite a FaceTime heavy culture. And I'm sure that maybe lots of industries are experiencing a real change in that now with coronavirus and increase in remote working, et cetera. But there was certainly a, you know, the client wants to see you on site. So you need to be there. And sometimes I, even as a non-parent, I remember the frustration of just being like, why do I why am I getting up, you know, at five o'clock in the morning to get a train Wasting to time travel to be there yeah. at seven o'clock for no reason when the client's not even in until nine? Absolutely. What's the point? It was very much like that. And I, I, you know, from a, I guess from a client perspective before now, things definitely have changed. Maybe people did use FaceTime as a marker of value for money. I'm not sure. But certainly we, we never, when I was there, it wasn't anything that we really pushed back on. I actually had, when I was first at EY, I had a brilliant um, exec director who I will refer to as my work dad, much to his annoyance. And he used to talk about the difference between being present and being visible. And he was actually really good at managing that. So long as you were visible, it didn't matter if you weren't present. But the client I was working for at the time, the health client, was was quite into FaceTime. And 
there was someone on that team though it was a someone who was a bit junior to me who about the same age as me actually he didn't have any kids every single day he would make some sort of quip about me leaving to pick Theo up and I just it really got to me against my better judgment so I wanted to not give a shit um, and I wanted to just turn around and say I'm here at 7 a.m like I didn't see my child this morning so that I could go and see him this evening or the other way around because we'd top and tail the day between Jack and I but I'd like go at four o'clock to get back to nursery for five and he'd be like oh part-time day is it half day is it like screw you I log on again at seven o'clock when my kids are in bed I don't need it from you but it did used to really get me what stopped you from saying anything back I think I probably did but in a really ineffective passive aggressive way rather than having a as I probably would now a slightly more constructive conversation where I say look I don't care how you work I just care how well you do your job and that you get things done when you do it. And this is generally how I work these days. When people do their work, so long as they're available when they need to be, I don't, I don't really mind how you structure your day. Just do a good job. And what was worse, actually, but he wasn't even doing a very good job. <laughs> and um, now yeah. I would sit down and have a conversation and kind of air the dirty laundry sort of thing. But I didn't at the time. And I probably just said something a bit catty, being defensive. Well, of course you're being defensive. And I think what's, I don't know if you found this, but I found my confidence took a real knock in the first kind of year after my son was born. And then once I'd sort of passed the year mark, I just found this like very central confidence where I was like, fuck you all. I'm doing exactly what I want to do. Do you know what I mean? I absolutely know what you mean. I think there's a few parts to that. One is I, I definitely think my confidence took a knock. And I also think, I don't know what the science is here. I'm sure baby brain is a thing because I felt like it took me a good couple of months to get back up to speed when I went back after Theo. I just felt really slow. But I do, again, when I was, I went for a walk yesterday to think about kind of what I wanted to try and articulate, not ramble on about today. And and there is something in that. I definitely am far more emboldened these days as to what my kind of, what works for me, what doesn't work for me and my family and what my red lines are and also what my expectations of other people around me are. I'm not a very hierarchical person at all, but I've got expectations about of those I work to and those that work for me. And I, I, I've got no qualms about being honest about some of that stuff now. That baby brain thing, that you say is really interesting and I in some ways I kind of want to smash that myth into pieces because I don't think it's baby brain per se I think it's when you do two jobs you know what I mean it's like well yeah if you're transitioning from one role to another whilst retaining the old role then yeah you are going to be and also my kids didn't neither of them slept until they were two (laughs) they were really really awful sleepers which is probably a reflection of us but they were terrible sleepers at the same time I was growing a human and my dad had started to decide he might think about dying soon. Um, he really strung it out. So there was a lot going on. I actually asked why if I could do a compressed week because I was working, you know, normal, normally Y hours, but pretty long. And they declined my request saying that they didn't support, this is from HR, not the health team, to be very clear, their employees working longer than an eight hour day. <laughs> So that was kind of the final straw for me on that. And I, uh, I don't know, it just, 
after that, something was a bit fractured. I felt a bit cheated. I'd like to think it's changed now. I see that they sponsor a flexible working awards program, etc. And I, I just, you know, to be clear, that was HR. That was not the health team. But it was a bit of a kick in the face. I just thought, you know, you've taken a good few years of my life. Thanks very much. And not to say I haven't got anything out of it, obviously, but can we meet in the middle here? Because this is untenable for me. It's kind of, it is completely laughable. If you've ever worked in that culture or environment, you'll know that an eight-hour day is like barely. Oh, yeah, perhaps the odd Friday once a year when you're hungover and you come in late to the office and you leave early to go to the pub. But, I, like you know, they don't really exist. Yeah, I mean, the longest day I ever did was 23 hours. So. Yeah, just <laughs> on, on client site. So, yeah. God. I can't really brush over your comment about your dad. So... What was going on there and when was this happening in your timeline? So I had gone back to work at the end of 2016 and my dad first decided, (laughs) we first thought he was going to die in May 2017. Uh, So he was diagnosed with prostate cancer in 2000, so when I was doing my A-levels. And he was incredibly fortunate that he got on well with his treatment after a pretty grim prognosis initially. He got on very well with his treatment. And he had, I'd say, probably 15 years or so, relatively untroubled. You know, everything is relative. But he became really ill that March. Um, I was obviously just back at work. Theo was about 15 months old and I was five months pregnant with Gracie. And it was a lot. And actually, at that point, I did leave my client role and do an internal role for a while so that I could be flexible in where I was, etc. And just not do ridiculous hours because it was pretty tough. I'm quite sanguine about this most of the time. I think about him every day and I miss him every day, but it is what it is. But he took a year to die, bless him. He he just kept rebounding. He'd nearly die and then he'd kind of rise again. And then we'd go through the same thing a couple of months later. So actually, by the time he did die, I think I didn't really believe it was going to happen in a way. Mm. And... um I really struggled with the ambiguity of death. I, my mum was a nurse and one of my sisters is a nurse and one's a GP. And I used to, I constantly would say to Ruth, my sister, who's GP, to whom I'm really close, when, when is he going to die? I need, to, I need you to tell me when it's going to be because this not knowing is, is really difficult. She would constantly be annoyed for me and say, well, I can't tell you, you know, it doesn't work like that. It was a bit of a roller coaster, to say the least. What you say about, the ambiguity there are no more ambiguous spaces than being pregnant and having a baby or even trying to conceive and also a death like it's yeah I really found that with being pregnant I was like well but then what will happen and then what will happen and when yeah. will I know and it's like well, it doesn't really work like that you just kind of have to just exist and what will happen will happen but it's very strange when we're so used to controlling everything absolutely it was quite a strange year and in fact really shit for my mum um so my granddad died these are my mum's parents um the week before I had grace and then my grandma died four months later on my birthday which I still think she did out of spite um <laughs> she was great if she had died before Gracie I swear there would have been some argument for reincarnation because she was so feisty and brilliant and uh, there's a lot of that in grace and then obviously dad five months after that so my mum lost both her parents and her husband within what is that eight months but it was a it was a weird year and Gracie kind of 
Grace is such an easy baby. Until she was about one, obviously she's made up for that since, but she was incredibly easy. I think she, I don't know, she just knew. She knew what we needed. But my dad and Theo, I've got a big family. I'm one of five and my sisters and my brother have lots of kids and they've got lots of kids. So my dad's got a lot of grandkids, but he and Theo had this really special little thing going on. It was really hard to articulate. They just, they were little buds. Whereas he and Grace never really, I don't know if he just didn't want to get too involved with her because he knew he wasn't going to see her for, you know, see much of her. But they never really had the same opportunity, I suppose, to get to know each other. And a lot of the times, you know, he by the time I had Grace, dad was really quite unwell and quite infirm and didn't really look like dad and quite often was totally out of it. <laughs> Not totally out of it, but he was deaf as a doorpost. Is that the phrase? So it was quite hard to communicate with him sometimes. And I think the reality is that I didn't really deal with any of it for a long time, for probably the October after dad died um, and everything kind of came crashing down again. But I think I just put one foot in front of the other and I was then eventually forced to realise that I had probably been quite depressed from when I'd had Grace, but I just hadn't stopped because it had been so busy because I had a 20-month-old, a newborn, was trying to go up to Yorkshire. And I never was there enough and I'll never feel like I was there enough. I'll always wish I did more. And then that following summer after dad died, I don't know what I was on. We were out all the time. It was a really hot summer, 2018. And uh, we were out all the time. We were always at Elido, the three of us. Jack was at work, the three of us. Um, Or we'd be at the seaside or we'd be, I don't know, doing some painting in the garden or whatever. We were always doing something. And I think I just didn't dare stop. But I was completely unaware of that at the time. And you said that you were feeling quite sad, like post grace do you think that was just because of the situation with your dad deteriorating I don't know if I could label it really I don't think I recognized it for anything other than exhaustion at the time because new baby 20 month old you know it's just it's hectic my sister would say that I probably did have PND from the beginning I don't know I don't know if it needs a label but then I'm not sure that anyone else would have noticed outside of probably Jack and Ruth for example and I definitely would have carried on as as I was for as long as I could had I not been sort of forced to confront it just because things sort of slightly crashed around me. So you were facing another return to a job that you felt perhaps wasn't quite set up for motherhood. Is that safe yes, to say? That is safe to say. Theo was about so he was, by then he was about two and a half. Or no, it was probably the Easter that I started to think about it just before dad died. And I just thought, I don't know if I can go back to that. And also we were using so many services as a family and we had really brilliant care for dad a lot of the time. The hospice at home team, which eventually meant he could die at home, which was what he really wanted, were amazing. We couldn't get any social help, social care help for my mum. She really needed just a night sitter or something once in a while. And um, we couldn't get it through the council and we couldn't self-pay because the services just didn't exist. And I kind of, something clicked in me and I thought, I'm not done I need to go back I just there are things that I want to solve there are problems that are neglected and at that point thought well I'll either go back into the NHS in a slightly different role I thought I might like to work at the centre e.g NHS England which I hadn't done or go back to local government looked around randomly found a job as our ex-client looking to get a great team together new talent new blood so that all kind of fell into place except it just didn't work out. And actually, the second interview I had for that job, 
I hadn't had a very coherent conversation with my dad. So that was the April and he died on the 4th of May, um, a date, which by the way, was completely wasted on him. No interest in Star Wars. <laughs> um, and the day of that interview, he rang me and it was the last really coherent conversation I had with him just before I went into the interview. And I, it's, it makes me quite emotional to think about it actually, because my dad was always, um, Oh, sorry. <laughs> my dad was always my biggest, I think, probably quite obnoxious to other people, cheerleader in lots of ways. Like, I mean, I fought with him for years, through my teenage years. God, we were constantly arguing. It wasn't, you know, a, it wasn't always an easy relationship. But I suppose we were close in our own way. And I never had any doubt that he was incredibly proud of me in whatever I did. And even when I, you know, was never very proud of myself, he he was always there. I would always talk to him about work rather than my mum. He would really irritate me in those conversations because he'd be a real know-it-all. I, I would have liked to have been able to talk to him about what I'm doing now. I often think that. I find looking at new jobs and stuff quite hard because there's a hole there now. Sorry, don't worry. I knew this was going to be like therapy. Nice. What happens? <laughs> it's the effect I have on people. What can I say? But in that final conversation, I mean, because I often find that chatting to people who've been through something like this, you seem to get people in two camps, which is either that they remember every single word or that they don't remember anything and then kicking themselves. So yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't like, it wasn't our goodbye conversation. We'd had that about a week before on Good Friday when I told my dad not to be so arrogant as to expect to die on Good Friday. Um, and I do remember a lot of that conversation. I don't really remember this one. I was in Bill's <laughs> um, near client <laughs> site having a cup of tea waiting to go in. And it was loud and it was hard to hear. But I guess he said the usual things. Go for it, kid. What have you got to lose? I'm proud of you. That kind of thing. And <laughs> therefore, when I saw him the next week, and I told him I'd got the job. He started asking me about my basic training and my uniform. So I don't know what job he thought I'd got, but it wasn't the one I'd got. <laughs> he he was having a different conversation to me, I think. <laughs> but he was still very invested. <laughs> it's, it's lovely that he was still invested. Basic training. I love it. It sounds like yeah. you could be a, a Marine or something. I think he thought I was going into the forces or something. I don't know. Uh, but uh, yeah, he was still very invested. <laughs> so... That job didn't work out. So describe your journey back into the NHS. Yeah, so <laughs> the wheels have to slightly come off to, before I get back to the NHS. So that job didn't work out for a couple of reasons, not least getting a job in West London when you live very much in East London is a very stupid thing to do when you've got a 90 minute each way commute. So that was an enormous pressure, despite, again, Jack being great. It just pressure around drop off and pick up and not seeing the kids was just too much and it was such an odd organization I've never known a culture like that for presenteeism literally disabled you from being able to work remotely you didn't have a phone couldn't have a work laptop you couldn't access all your server stuff remotely it was a challenge and there was the person who'd set up that team ended up not being there and that's a whole other story that's that's their story but it was quite toxic and most of the team that they had recruited left very quickly within six months but it just wasn't working for me and I knew it wasn't going to and then a horrible thing happened to my friend and I I think it was the catalyst that just 
forced me to let go of everything, to let go of all the, I can do it all. I can manage this all. I can be everything. I can keep going. I'm not sad. You know, and it just all came out. <laughs> um, so my friend, Carolyn, who is um, an NCT friend, her baby Beatrix was born, normal birth, normal pregnancy. And then a, a week into her life, they discovered she had a, a really serious kidney condition and she had a, a rough old time of it for nine months. And eventually following an operation, she had a hypoxic brain injury and, and eventually died at the beginning of November. So this time of year makes me think of her a lot because and Carolyn and Max, because there's all those anniversaries for Carolyn and Max. And I just cannot comprehend the pain of that. But watching Caro go through that and and just having to square up to the fragility of life you know it's one thing your 80 year old dad dying but a nine-month-old baby and on days where I didn't see my kids and stuff it just just wasn't right I just it just none of it sat well I worry that I always looked like I'd been dumped because I'd get on the train and I'd just cry. I would just cry all the way home on the tube, like completely out of my control. Couldn't help it. I wasn't kind of wailing or anything. or It wasn't heavy snot crying most days, but I would just weep. It was completely ridiculous, quite cathartic. But I actually took some time off. I went to the GP. I put myself back on drugs. Rather, the GP put me back on drugs. I went and found a good therapist. And I thought very hard about what was important to me and what I wanted to do. And that wasn't spend three hours a day commuting and not seeing my kids. And it wasn't working for a council with a fairly toxic culture. I decided I wanted to go back to health. I thought I would either like to go back to a trust or to the centre. felt like the centre would be interesting. I went to meet a, a friend who had been my director, my first ops director on my, on my graduate scheme. And I'd stayed in touch with him and he had a long career in the NHS and then had also done some consulting. So he'd been at GE and McKinsey and I went to meet him and said look I've made this really poor <laughs> poor move and I I want to come back to health can you help me build my network at NHSE so that I can kind of get to know people with a view to trying to get myself in and he said I could or you could you know do it yourself because I need someone to do this job for six months we're going through a restructure so you'll have to apply for it with everybody else in the end but it will give you a foot in the door and you'll get to know people and so I jacked my job in and I started that one. I am actually going to quote Handmaid's Tale now. Don't ask me why. <laughs> but there was a line that, oh dear, says that the universe speaks through people, whether you're religious or not. Substitute the universe for whatever you like. The universe, yeah, like I get fate, it. whatever. I'm quite hippie about these things sometimes. I'm a real believer in things happening for a reason. And how weird that, I don't know, he just sort of popped up and was like, yep. <laughs> yeah, it was incredibly... <laughs> It was incredibly fortuitous and it made it kind of unfeasibly easy, actually, to extricate myself from that horrible situation and go back to an organisation that, you know, my heart will, oh, this sounds even more hippie-ish, but my, you know, my heart is with the NHS. I truly believe in what it tries to do. And yes, it's flawed and it's flawed because it's run by people in, in many respects, but I love it. You know, it's it's my purpose or my calling or whatever. And I, I'm happy to be back even in the midst of this chaos. It was a really strange, pivotal, emotional time. And again, there was Jack just doing his thing, keeping us all going and um, generally being amazing and giving me lots of space and being patient. Um, and it worked out for me. 
And you said that medication was like a key part of your journey. Was that a difficult decision for you to make to take that step? Or was that something that you had always accepted that was needed for you personally? So it certainly was not the first time that I'd gone on antidepressants. It was quite a hard decision in a way because, and it always has been, because I don't talk to myself like I would talk to somebody else. And I think a lot of us do that. So I probably have a fairly negative narrative in my head about, you know, not being able to hack it and failure, etc. But I think when you're a parent, it's bigger than you and you don't have so much of a say and you don't get to necessarily pander to that narrative because, you know, you're like, well, it's your life just isn't focused on you, is it? You know, you're a unit and my kids are always top of the list. And generally I'm always bottom. But you've got a job to do. You can't just yeah. I've got some really good straight talking friends. And also my sister is the straightest talking, most caring, but the straightest talking of sisters. And she she will always call me out on my bullshit, I suppose. She'll always say, look, you're not right. Or you don't get to pick or choose this one. You just have to do this. And I think I knew then, to be honest, it had got to the point where I'd suppressed everything for so long. It was coming out <laughs> and I had to still function. And, you know, that was that was that. And actually, I haven't come off them since then. Um, and I, for the first time in my life, don't feel any pressure to do so because things are just about okay. And that's the thing, right? It's just, I do think it gets to a bit of a stage where it's like, you know what, like whatever, it works until it doesn't work anymore. And yeah. if it's still, if it's still working, then okay. If it ain't broke. Yeah. So I'm conscious of time, but sadly I could just talk to you forever about all these things. My mind is going down like a million different paths, but I guess the main thing I wanted to say was how I know that lots of listeners will be thinking about this, how sorry I am to hear about your friends and about baby Beatrix and everything that she went to. I just cannot even imagine how that must have felt and is feeling for her parents still. So I guess that was the first thing that I wanted to say. And secondly, that I'm not that surprised that that was a bit of a catalyst. Like you can't really you can't really shove anything down into the depths of your soul when it comes to a death of a child, can you? As you say, it's just a catalyst and it was so horrendous, truly. Yeah. So eventually, after all this stuff, you came back into the NHS and you were obviously in your happy place, finally, where you wanted to be. And what were the key differences in terms of your support from them as an employer versus where you'd been previously? So. It was hugely different. I think I was in a different place emotionally. And as you said, I'd had that moment that you talked about where you just kind of become more confident in a way. And I don't know if it's having children or if it's age or a combination of those things, but I became more sure of what worked for me and for our family and what I was and wasn't prepared to sacrifice or do. And I am evangelically boring about flexible working. And I've been really lucky, I suppose, that I could do that at NHS England. I think there are a few reasons why I've been able to do that. One is my boss gets it. So if your boss gets it, generally, you know, you can manage to organise something. But that is pretty inequitable because you can't guarantee that someone's boss gets it. So I just, I got to a point where I was senior enough that actually I sort of said, this is what I'm going to do. If there's a problem with that, you need to tell me rather than asked for it. It was kind of a forgiveness, not permission thing. And I think I hadn't been in a position to do that necessarily before in my career because I hadn't been senior enough. But now there's, you know, nobody's, people are scrutinizing 
what I do from a delivery perspective. Am I delivering? Am I doing a good job? But not, are you sat at your desk from nine to five? And as I said, talking earlier, like, you know, the NHS is a such a shit phrase, but it's a people business. So we have to get these things right. There's a phenomenal organization called Flex NHS. They've kind of organically grown through social media, et cetera, and really raised the profile of the importance of flexibility. Quite easy for me to work flexibly behind a desk. It's a lot less easy to do that on a ward or, you know, in a community clinic, et cetera. But we have to get ourselves to the point that we can make those opportunities available to everyone and not just parents. So most of my team aren't parents, but I bang on about flexibility all the time because I think everybody needs it. Work is work. And if you are lucky enough to quote Gloria Steiner, if you're lucky enough to do something that you can do and not notice the time going by, well, then that's success and that's brilliant. But you also have to have a real life, I think, alongside of it. And, you know, it's not the be all and end all. And I just didn't have those things before, I guess. Didn't have the opportunity, didn't have the seniority, didn't back myself to do it, and I didn't have the role models. And those things have really come together to start to make flexibility just the default position. If we've learned anything through COVID from a how-we-work perspective, it's that flexibility is possible because we can't have been the only household in the country doing shifts to manage our kids and manage our work. And I really hope that coming out of this, whenever that is, whatever that looks like, we don't squander the learning and the opportunities to embrace some of that as the norm. That the wealth of information coming out about how disadvantaged women have been working through lockdown is phenomenal. I mean, I worry about the lasting impact of that. I think it will take us a long time to recover from some of that. But for example, Jack has always said he works for an advertising agency. And he's always said in a creative industry like that, you really need to be in one place. But they've absolutely nailed this year and they've all been at home. So hopefully that shift in other industries and between genders will will last. I don't know. I really I evangelically boring about it. No, it's really, really important. And as I said, it's a really key part of why I do this podcast in the first place is because I want to draw attention to some of the things that women are having to deal with whilst also trying to hold down a job, go back to work, figure out their career, care for parents, et cetera, et cetera. I feel really passionate about it. So I'm really glad that you talk about it. So I'm just going to ask you just a couple more questions before we go. So what's the one piece of advice that you'd want to leave mums who are concerned about going back to work with? Lower your standards. (laughs) I say that (laughs) when people are having second children as well. They're like, what's your advice? It's not going to be perfect. You can't do everything perfectly. You don't need to. No one's judging you except you. So just lower your standards and hope for the best. In my case, my children would attest to the lowering of my standards day by day. But, you know, you don't have to have made a gourmet dinner for your children to come home to after nursery because chances are they had some toast at four o'clock or some beans on toast. They don't want it. And actually, they won't remember that. It's about all of you surviving, all of you getting your fulfillment where you need it. But really, no one is judging the minutiae except for you. And if they are, then they have got too much time on their hands. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> we all know these these scary mums. But yeah, I think letting yourself off the hook is a great one. And I know exactly what you mean. And it's okay if it's pesto, pasta and sweet corn. It doesn't have to be brilliant every night. <laughs> is pesto a food group? That's the question. My son is obsessed with pesto. <laughs> obsessed. Pesto. <laughs> is there anything in particular that you want to shout about? So of causes or um, anything like that that you want to bring attention to before we go? 
a really great book, actually, during my tube weeping days um, called The Mother of All Jobs by Christine Armstrong. And it really gave me the kick up the arse to look at what I wanted to do. I would highly recommend it if you're a bit lost. I don't recommend reading it through tears on the Victoria line, but um, curl up with a cup of tea. It is a good one. And Christine's really active on Twitter as well. She often will engage with people if, if they want to chat. Mm, okay, so that's The Mother of All Jobs by Christine Armstrong. Thank yes. you. So great recommendation. Well, look, Rachel, it's been a joy, a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. But have a great rest of your day, whatever it is you're up to. All right. Thanks, Tish. Bye. Well, everyone, that's the end. Thank you so, so much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to New Leaf on wherever you get your podcast from so that you don't miss out on my next episode. Feel free to message me directly on Instagram at at newleafpodcast if you like and on at Growth if you are feeling inspired and want to find out about my personalised pre and postnatal mum coaching programmes. Have a lovely, lovely day. And if you are a parent, have an even better night. Bye, everybody.